Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And we are thrilled to be here today with Molly Schulman, who is Hello. a... Hi. <laughs> She's a writer and an editor. Uh, she received her BA in creative writing from the New School in 2009 and then worked in publishing as an in-house editor at the Friedrich Agency where she... Okay, but is anyone ever an outhouse editor? <laughs> oh yeah. Well, now, right? They say, "Oh, go to this you didn't editor." Get that joke, did you? Oh, ha. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> Molly got it. Hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they they didn't put me in the outhouse, fortunately. <laughs> there, there's somebody has this thing about like I'm standing here. I'm sitting here with your manuscript before me. Soon it will be behind me, or your rejection letter, or something. That's in the wow. last joke. Wow. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> I thought the slush pile was mean enough, there but, you know, yeah. getting creative. <laughs> um, anyway, to, to move from the low to the high, she worked with authors such as Elizabeth Stroud, Jane Smiley, and Ruth Ozeki. In October 2013, she left the agency to pursue her own writing, performing, and professional freelance editing and author consultation services. As a freelance editor, she's worked with authors such as... Imbolo, I do not know how to say that, although... Mbwe? Yeah, that's right. Well done. She just won the Penn Faulkner, so anyway. She did. And Real, Will Heinrich. I think I know that one. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Um, she has taught writing and publishing classes in Austin, Texas at the Writing Barn and Tom's Roasting Company and in New York at Gotham Writers Workshop, where I also taught once upon a time. Uh, Molly debuted her first one-woman show, a poetry-based storytelling performance called One of Six, a story about growing up with many siblings in many houses, at the City of Savannah Center for Cultural Affairs in May 2014. Her poetry can be found in literary journals, um, and she was uh, she guest edited the September 2015 issue of Five Quarterly and was a winter 2016 Ragdell writer in residence. She's currently working on her debut novel, a multi-generational tale of brothers, sisters, thimbles, and show business called How to Cry on Cue. And she will be the guest author and teacher at La Ventura Inaugural Writers Retreat this September in Italy. So we'll talk about all of that. Welcome, Molly. Thank you. Thank you for that grand introduction, and thank you for having me. It's so lovely to connect with you and, and all of your listeners. It's a wonderful podcast you have, so I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited to dig into all this. We have to do a quick check-in. I know, because I'm all forgetting uh, the questions. This always happens. But yeah. Angie, what are you working on this week? Well, this week, Elizabeth... <laughs> Uh, I am waiting patiently to hear back from my very super nice editor friend. So patiently. And <laughs> I know by patient, it means I have no fingernails left. But um, And uh, doing a lot of stuff around the children's school, so that's been fun. I am the board president there, so... And teaching filmmaking. And teaching filmmaking, so... And this is a film editor that you're waiting for. Yes. So Sorry. Interesting to... Outhouse or in-house? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think he's he's mostly outhouse. So, oh. well, no, I mean he works with a collective of, of people. So no, no so there is no house there's to no be joke. in. There's no joke anymore. Yes. Well, yeah. So. <laughs> um, well, I, funnily enough, have sent my my novel off to readers, so I am waiting. Uh, I think my my version of patience was I decided that I had no ambition anymore, and I didn't really care what happened because I didn't actually even care if I was ever going to be a writer. 
So that was that was last week, and then I realized, oh no, I'm just panicking. Yeah, so that was good. Um, so and now I have completely revised the novel in my own head, and I almost it's think so I don't. Better. I don't even need feedback because I just know what I have to do. <laughs> yeah. So, but I think it'd be good to wait and see if I should, in fact, start from scratch <laughs> or move forward with the eighteen thousandth draft. So, Molly, what are you working on this week? Wow. Well, I think you both kind of covered the the tenterhooks aspect of this business. So there's a lot of that. Um, and I have countless pieces out on submission all the time. Um, so I, I do my best to forget about them. So when the rejections come, it's no big deal. When the acceptances come, it's great. But, you know, I'm not waiting too hard for it. So I'm, I'm in a constant place of tenterhooks as well. Um, and I'm actually preparing for a reading tomorrow night at a really wonderful independent bookstore here in Austin, Texas, where I am based now. Um, it's called Malvern Books. And give them a little shout out here. They do a monthly reading series with only female writers, poetry, prose, um, and free ice cream. So that's the hook. Uh, it's called Ice Cream Social. And uh, I'll be reading tomorrow and and trying to incorporate some ice cream into my reading as well. So uh, looking forward to that. Are you going to read from your novel in progress or something? Yes. Yeah. From the novel in progress. I I debated kind of opening with more polished pieces because you know when you'll get a laugh or a clap, but I'm going to try and be a little a little scared, which as you both know is sometimes good for a reading or a, um, getting feedback on something that maybe isn't even ready for the world yet. Um, well, that reminds me of, you know, Elizabeth was just talking about, I, this is... You were talking about uh, Aziz Ansari and how, you know, the, what, what comics do is they take stuff out on the road mm. that is, they know doesn't work. Sure. And so they're actually like, they're honing what they're doing in front of people all the time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, you're talking about taking that risk in front of people just put me in mind that there's actually a whole approach that's about putting that stuff out there and yeah he said to Terry Gross and the and I listened to it as a podcast but um he said you know it, if I'm getting just wild laughs I know I'm not taking enough risks you know if mm -hmm. nothing's falling mm -hmm. flat then I'm not taking enough risks so I love that right yeah in fact I I've looked to stand-up comedians before uh before I've done a reading because it takes that kind of delusional confidence that you can uh, do such a thing which is is very inspiring and you see that I think in a in a very specific and vulnerable spot with with comedians and especially someone I listened to that same interview actually and he's such a storyteller and most good comedians are if you break it down yeah they're funny and they're silly but they're really uh, just good storytellers and I think novelists can learn a lot from that medium how about when you were doing your one woman show? Did you, um, I mean, did you, did you sort of bring that to, was it funny? <laughs> <laughs> um, there were many funny parts. There were some sad parts. Um, hopefully some parts encapsulated both humor and not. Um, but essentially it, it started out as a poetry book, um, with no intent to perform it at all. And when I would do individual readings, just excerpts, individual poems, 
that was kind of the feedback I got was, oh, this is so performative and you're funny and you're, you know, I used to act as well. And no matter how much I seem to try and get away from that, I, it's just in my bones, um, very hammy and like love musical theater and all of that comes across even in my, you know, darkest piece of intimate poetry um there's still a little theater kid inside of me so uh that was the feedback I was getting when I was reading these pieces of poetry and it kind of just came together epiphany style you know bright shining light in the distance saying turn this book into a play um and and then when I did that I did have that experience of you know putting myself on a stage in a way that it was more vulnerable but it was also kind of creating if it's a show, even if it's you know autobiographical, there is that kind of gauze in between yourself and the audience. So I felt uh, protected in that way. Was it a show you you memorized and you wrote and then memorized and performed verbatim, or was it improvisational at all? Uh, no, it was it was pretty. I, I stuck to the script, um, and you know, in retrospect, it's been a few years now. And if you've ever been in a play remembering that you once remembered so many lines is just <laughs> astonishing. I can't, and these were ones I, you know, wrote and worked on for years and still, if I, it would be a fun experiment to see if I could try and recreate even a single poem from memory because I, I don't think I could, but I know at, at some point I did. So it was a lot of uh, reading to myself in the mirror until I got it right. <laughs> Well, I'm going to counter that. I think I've been saying this so often, and so I have no idea if we've talked about this already, but, you know, Elizabeth reads uh, Sherlock Holmes to Leah. To our older and, child. Um, uh-huh. One of the stories that I was listening to, I don't know if you actually were reading it or if you were listening to it, but he talks about the fact that, Watson talks about how Sherlock doesn't understand or know the Copernican theory um, of, of how the solar system works and he's shocked mm-hmm. like how can you of all people not know that and he, you know he goes on to Sherlock is basically like it has no relevance to my life so I have no interest in, in holding on to that information I shall do my best to forget it now that you've told me <laughs> and um, I think there's something to be said for like the importance of that at the time you were doing it and mm-hmm. where you when you were creating it and, and how um, now you probably need space for the current projects that you are sure. spending your mental energy on. So it's yeah. good. It's good you've forgotten. It. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> I like to really support people in doing things like forgetting, <laughs> drinking, and leaving their children right. at shopping malls. So. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you for that support. And I, I do think there's there's merit in that. And every time you feel frustrated that oh I forgot, you know my my great one act play, it's like well there's a reason for that. So it's, it's good to hear. <laughs> So let's talk a little bit about your editing work. Um, you've worked with some truly outstanding, remarkable people. Um, is, is this work where you, you're getting like a shitty first draft, like where you're like, uh, Elizabeth Stroud, I just, you know, try again or well, tell, tell us about this work. <laughs> well, you know, surely it depends on the writer and it also depends on, you know, back when I was at the agency, uh, I would see these really raw drafts from people who are just, you know, Pulitzer winning authors. And it was such a learning experience to see where everyone starts. Um, and even the most, you know, brilliant, learned author 
has many hiccups along the way or, you know, insecurities along the way, just getting to know them, not even uh, based on the work itself, but just getting to know the author personality um, and how, depending on where they are in the manuscript, there's so many shifts. Um, so that was really, really valuable. And then the, the work that I do now, um, you know, I get so many different kinds of clients, uh, published authors and people who have never written a word before and they have a great diary entry they feel like expanding. <laughs> uh, so I, I try to keep uh, a kind of, you know, approach every manuscript at every draft with the same sort of sensibility, which is, you know, how do we tell this story in the most effective um, and emotionally present sort of way. Um, but it, it does come to me in many different forms, that's for sure. What do you think is the most common note that you have for people? I, I, now that we've established that it's different for everybody. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say many, many, and mostly novels, and I, I do edit um, all sorts of nonfiction as well, but I primarily work with literary fiction and commercial fiction, and I would say the biggest issue, and with my own work too, is the kind of two or three stories in one syndrome, yeah. um, where you want to tell so much, and which is, it's better to have more ideas than not enough ideas, surely, but um, a lot of times there's this tendency, I think, across the board to overcomplicate um, a narrative and to, you know, perhaps have three completely different book ideas, but try and mash them all into one. Um, and as a result, you know, a lot of uh, storylines get shortchanged and not developed as fully as possible. And I've run into that cross-genre. Cross a lot of different types of novels run into that. Yeah, that's that's my the problem with mine. Well, I think that there's a, yeah, well, I mean, I think there's also a fear, you know, I do a lot of planning and mm -hmm. I, look at outlines and I think that a lot of times when people are looking at narrative and they look at the say the plot or the action that happens they don't feel like it's enough mm -hmm. and um, so oftentimes you know I'll see people do it just you know doing like okay and then I will you know this teacher whose dog has run away like that's not compelling enough the dog has you know got to be picked up by the CIA you know what I mean like it's something that you're just like okay that is higher stakes I guess right but not the stakes this book wants to have or that you indicated should be appropriate to what the story you're telling mm-hmm yeah Complex. Especially now with, you know, people trying to reinvent the wheel and yet have a classic enough approach that it will be revered as great literature. <laughs> so trying to be inventive and yet, you know, pay tribute to the the way it works, quote unquote. It's, mm -hmm. it's a difficult balance to strike for sure. Yeah, I noticed like everything is now literary um, thriller. thriller. Yes. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Oh yeah. If someone doesn't die on page like 50 mysteriously, you know, oh my God. <laughs> kill someone. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I'm just like, okay, maybe I can just, you know, do that. Like just, you know, someone, one of my favorite things online is when people recut trailers and they <laughs> change the genre of them. And uh, one of my favorite ones is the Mary Poppins as a thriller. <laughs> and it is oh so awesome but um it is it does seem like uh somehow it's got to throw that piece in there well and maybe that's just something about our our mental state 
these mm-hmm. days. Like we like talk about tenter hooks. Like we're all a little. I'm nervous. not. <laughs> I feel really maybe, good maybe about where things are headed yeah. right now. It's a very peaceful time. It yes. is right. It's relaxing. <laughs> <laughs> so t- tell us what you know about this writing retreat, and I know it's the oh, first gosh. time ever. So first time ever. Well, it's a it's a fun story of how this kind of fell into my lap, which is from an editorial client that I worked with, um, brilliant author who, you know, that's the beauty of this sort of work is, you know, you work with someone for two to three weeks on uh, an edit and then they kind of just stay in your life and you email them when you read something that reminds you of their work and they email you and they're, you know, have a referral or for instance, are starting an Italian writing retreat on the Adriatic coast in what appears to be heaven on earth. Um, so this, this author, Renee Humphrey, uh, she contacted me and I've worked with her on her novella, I think, I think three, two or three times. Um, so we have a kind of, um, you know, intimate ongoing dialogue and she said this was her new project and Mm -hmm. she sent me the pictures and that was pretty much all I needed (laughs) needed to see. Um, and we've worked together to kind of come up with a curriculum. It's going to be a a six day course and about two hours a day and then some time for one-on-one instruction or even just conversation, really depending on what the author needs. I'll, I'll be there. And you know, who doesn't want to go to breakfast at Nona's house? Uh, Like, I know, right? Like if if you never had a Nona, this is your chance. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, I know. It should be wonderful, and it's upcoming in September, which I gather is like the perfect time to be in Italy. So mm-hmm. it just kind of couldn't couldn't seem any more amazing. I'm so. going to focus on the important things. Then after the World workshop, the schedule on the website, which we'll link to. In you the have notes. a catered lunch in the villa. <laughs> I mean, what? What? How better to follow up breakfast at Ona's than lunch in the villa? Right. <laughs> I know. Who knows what will be for dinner, but plus writing, you know, yeah. just yeah. to say, okay. <laughs> yeah, movie night. That looks great. Yes, looks really movie good. night. Renee, Renee is wonderful yes. as well, so we're right there with you. Well, guys, should come. I know um, it sounds it sounds <laughs> glorious. Um, so, what when you're teaching? Is it going to be a workshop where you'll have read and are discussing pieces, or or something else? A little bit of both. Um, uh, Renee is asking that participants submit in advance uh, what they're working on um, just to familiarize herself with the work. And so I can take a look, but I won't be editing anything in advance. It's kind of just to see who will be in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and then pretty much class by class, we'll take on different categories, you know, character development, plot, the kind of basic writing workshop stuff, but uh, really I'm just excited for people to write, produce new stuff when they're there, Mm -hmm. um, because it will be such a fertile creative ground, um, and we will be workshopping pieces that people bring to class, but I'm really hoping and going to encourage people to, you know, write after dinner and bring what they wrote, wrote that evening into class the next day. Um, mm. because it is, it's a short, it's a short residency and I want people to feel like they're getting really a specific experience being there. Um, 
and you know I'm excited for the writing that I hope to produce there as well because you know as soon as you're in a, a different area let alone a very beautiful area uh, it's it's always good for the soul and good for the the pen if you will <laughs> yeah you don't have anything else you yeah, have to I be yeah I find doing. that as soon as I'm in Italy with a glass of wine in a villa very yeah, often me. I have just complete you know <laughs> lifting of blocks and yeah. Uh, can you give us like I mean I don't want to put you on the spot but like some favorite writing exercise either that you've experienced as a writer or that you give as a teacher or something that's juicy uh, sure I don't I guess it's a little juicy um, I am fascinated uh, with the way that television makes its way into literature mm. um, so one of my favorite exercises and it, it, it kind of varies per class but essentially I, I like to, I encourage, the prompt is very simple. It's just write a short piece of fiction, it can be complete or not, that integrates either people talking about TV or the TV on in the background or the way that television is influencing some big decision um, because for whatever reason, well, there is a reason that television, a lot of television has been considered low art, but it's also omnipresent and very much involved in our you know, cells and emotional lives. Um, and there's great TV, there's bad TV, there's television commercials, which are fascinating mm -hmm. and horrible and wonderful. Um, and that's kind of one of the more, it's a, it's a low stakes exercise, but I find that people get really creative with it um, and produce all sorts of different things. You get five people in the room and ask them to talk about TV and it's rare that anyone talks about the same television show, which is cool. That is fascinating because it's one of those things that is omnipresent. I mean, it is kind of the water cooler conversation of our time. Mm -hmm. And, um, and of course, you know, in our pasts too, and in, in very different ways. And it's been this changing technology and we all know that. And yet it, it doesn't work its way into literature much. I mean, I feel like people are grappling with, you know, the cell phone and how all these things need I to come. I feel like there's a lot of books coming out where that's like in the nineties or just like, or stories where people are like, I'm completely avoiding this technology. technology. Mm -hmm. But then they avoid TV too, which was there. Yeah, the yeah, I know. I but I mean, it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it, it is very interesting because every, I was listening to a rap song this morning. <laughs> Not really rap, whatever. It was kind of, whatever. But the guy's song was talking about, it was basically, we don't have cable was the <laughs> chorus and it was talking about like how you you know they watch Netflix and they mm -hmm. don't have cable and they you know it was like it was a whole song kind of about which is a conversation one has often right like somehow these are like I know but it's just interesting given like the TV and then you know conversely I was just watching a program and this guy was talking about the importance of releasing your digital content like a podcast or a video or whatever with uh, you know almost at the same time every week that you're doing mm. it because mm -hmm. people actually start anticipating it so even though we have this on-demand culture um there is still some of that same uh waiting for a specific time to consume something like we had back when you could only see laverne and shirley at seven <laughs> yeah well, that whole idea of serial storytelling itself, you know, whether the show is something of narrative heft or whether it's a little sitcom, that idea of somehow getting viewers to come back to it. Um, and that is essentially what should happen in all sorts of storytelling. Um, so it's, it's 
interesting, the immediacy that television allows for that. Um, again, whether the program is you know high or low, it's still operating on those same storytelling uh, bones. Mm-hmm. How much do you think that uh, television is influencing the structure and shape and bones of contemporary literature? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think you see a lot, especially in editing, uh, kind of jump cuts and uh, fragmented um, chapters, and sometimes it's quite effective, um, especially if it somehow you know relates to a character's fragmented self, um, which is a very, uh, I think, fair way to describe most people's minds right now, distracted and, um, you know, flitting around. <laughs> um, but sometimes it can get distracting and it takes away from, you know, if you're describing some sort of pastoral landscape, but you anticipate that your reader has the attention span of a fly, um, you know, you're doing a disservice to your own descriptive language, which, you know, can surely be expansive, uh, just trying to think of the Andrew Wyeth version of that, you know, for, for a fly. Well, no, just, you know, as you're talking about the sort of the pastoral kind of image and like the image, Andrew Wyeth just, just came to my mind and thinking about his paintings. And if it was like, well, I got 15 seconds here of your attention. What am I going to do? She and, says clipped. Yeah. The Andrew, yeah. The Andrew Wyeth for the television age. Okay. <laughs> just like one, one blade of grass and yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I love it. Love it. Do you do you have any interest in writing? I mean, so you write poetry, performance, fiction. Anything else? <laughs> uh, no, you know, I've de- because of my inherent, you know, interest in television and performing. It's always kind of been uh, like a little friend on my shoulder, just saying, "Well, what do you want to try screenwriting? Like, isn't that logical?" <laughs> um, but I am just not great at dialogue, so that is. Um, Definitely, you know, is something to keep in mind if you want to try screenwriting, which is primarily that. Um, and but I, I'm just going to interject yeah. quickly. As a person who works with people and helps improve their writing, isn't dialogue something you could improve? A skill you could develop? It Should is. Should you want to do that? I I would want to improve all the skills, <laughs> but um, it's just a. I don't feel the way the excitement. Mm. I feel when I write fiction or poetry, um, I, I just don't feel it when I write uh, dialogue in general and whenever I've tried screenwriting. Um, it's kind of like, uh, am I allowed to say, well, this isn't a curse word necessarily, but, um, you know, David Rakoff, the, the wonderful humorist and essayist, he, in, in one of his essays, says, writing is like pulling teeth from my dick, um, <laughs> which is extreme, but that's how I feel when I when I try uh, writing for film. So I'm going to uh, avoid it. <laughs> I love that. We may have to actually <laughs> bleep. bleep. Yes, do we have to bleep? No. Well, we could go de- bleep. <laughs> or bleep. podcasts don't bleep. <laughs> we we might we could give a warning. Warning. All right, I'll set this one. Warning, no. the, your children are going to hear words that the fifth graders in their school are saying all the time. Oh, yeah, yes. All the time. Um, it's just like that, uh, the interview with Aziz. He said he's he's always getting the bleep guy, giving I, him a, a chance. So. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, the bleep guy must love me. <laughs> um so, uh, so, t- so let's talk a little bit more about now. Are you? Do you feel like you're still on the kind of pulse of the literary scene um, 
freelancing in Austin as you were like in-housing in New York? <laughs> different, different scene, different pulse, um, but still breathing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, first of all, Austin it has a very wonderful, small, but thriving literary community. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's hard, I'm sure as you both know, as creative people, it's it's easy to become a little hermetic. So even though the community's there, I don't necessarily, um, you know, go to every reading. I don't get out as much as I would like to, but um, there are a lot of readings here and a lot of students here. The MFA programs, there are two really good ones at UT. Um, So a lot of um, talented writers uh, are around. So just knowing that feels wonderful. And, um, you know, in New York, I was, even though I was on the creative side of publishing, I was very much like, a young woman working in publishing and that means I go to a lot of parties and drink you know like half cups of wine and hobnob and all of that is wonderful but um, being away from that is also wonderful in ways um, because it allows for a lot more you know reading and writing the things I want to read and write um, and again I, I was just reading wonderful, wonderful authors at the agency, but kind of there's a a little bit of a toxicity involved when you need to, it's your job to kind of comb through publisher's lunch every hour, you know, refreshing it. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's a little nice to be outside of the publishing world and back into the literary world. Mm. Before we leave the publishing world, what did you, what did you learn kind of being kind of attending to the market and attending to that the whole the rats race like what what mm-hmm. what did you what did you learn that we don't know <laughs> <laughs> well i i can't promise you don't know it but um yeah. <laughs> i did i did when i started you know because i i started fresh out of poetry school so i was very much like i'm just doing this as a spy like i don't want to cross over to the you know dark side i'm an artist first and foremost <laughs> And very, very soon I, I learned that most people are artists in that industry. Some are just better at like, you know, selling things <laughs> and you need to have an artist sensibility, even your most business minded, you know, marketing uh professional when you're dealing with books and stories, like if someone can't describe to you you know, why this book needs to be marketed in this way, then they're not kind of tapping into that creative self, which really everyone does need to have or at least reference um, when they're working in the business. So that was illuminating to me to see that everyone in publishing, even if it were, you know, disguised in a more business minded sort of way, everyone really was kind of sharing the common goal of this is a story I want to be out in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on a practical level, just learning how to do, you know, speak and engage with authors in a way that is effective and emotionally intelligent, all these things as, you know, a, a writer and a poet, you just kind of want to fangirl over all your favorite writers. And then um, I wasn't, I'd given the chance to do that, you know, working for the agency, I had to act like a professional and a peer and not like a you know 20 year old pipsqueak like I had to carry myself with a I know what I'm saying even though I just graduated from college mm-hmm. um, and kind of learning learning how to respond and work with such talented people was just invaluable 
Mm. Can you give our listeners a little peek into the, like, inside the agency, you know, the slush pile and all of that? Because it's, it says, it can seem so mysterious when you're kind of sending things down the wire. (laughs) I know. Uh, Well, every agency, you know, like every author is so, so different. And I can only speak for the Friedrich agency. And I I did work for another agency for a short period of time uh, called Kuhn Projects, which is um, and now goes by a different name that I don't know, so I don't want to mess it up. Um, but essentially, both agencies at the time were very, very small with no more than four people on staff. Um, so my experience was very warm, and it wasn't as scary as I think most people think of like the big New York City agencies, like they're to stamp their big red rejection on you. Um, It was, you know, and so far as the slush pile, every single letter was read from beginning to end. Mm -hmm. Um, And because we didn't have, we would only have one intern at the time. So it was just so communal. And my uh, Molly Friedrich, the kind of matriarch of the company, she would insist on having her door open. So if she had a conversation with an author or, or an editor, like everybody has to hear it and be involved as possible. So it was a rare, I think a rare experience. I, I know all agencies aren't as familial, but uh, it was such a team effort. And uh, especially when it comes to the editorial stuff, to have a small enough group that you can all work together, perhaps on the same manuscript, but a large enough group that you have varying opinions and areas of expertise, uh, I think was was really special as well. It sounds amazing. Actually. Yeah. You know, the thing that I keep thinking about is just, you know, there's so much despair that I hear around the state of publishing. Mm-hmm. And um, I've been listening to this book where they talk about, it's about approaching your problems with a design process. And one of the things they talk about with, uh, are gravity problems. Mm-hmm. Like you're not getting rid of gravity like that's not going to be one of the things you fix in your life. Um, so you have to kind of either reframe your problem or, you know, readjust it. And I guess the question I would have is, you know, from where you're sitting and have been, when people are in that despairing place, what would be a sort of a readjustment to help mm-hmm. them be more proactive about their career? Sure. Um, they're definitely, you know, the the end of the hardcover was a big worry um, and you know when ebooks came to be at first it was such a wonderful thing because more readers more formats and then slowly it was such an evil thing and you know there are these layers of um, despair that do exist on a technical level um, and I think you know it sounds a little a little trite but I've seen it in action which is when those very real things are going on on the kind of you know larger business level when the five, big six publishers are turning into big five and maybe soon big three, big two. It's it's very real, but I've seen people get together and kind of return to the point, to the basics, to the again story, and you witness, you see people switch gears between like I could either spend my time talking about this nearly in control uncontrollable business model that is shifting before our eyes 
or we can talk about this like book on submission that needs to you know see the world and the world needs to meet this debut author and there there has been a shift since I've left the publishing industry where there are several new problems but hardcover sales are way up and you know all these new authors are really getting a, a getting a chance especially with smaller presses or taking risks um, and then when a book does well with a small press then a big press sometimes jumps on and kind of for every macro despair, there is a micro success. Um, and I, I do see that happening uh, with my my rose-colored glasses fully, <laughs> fully on. I love it. I love it. Uh, well, it is time for Steal This! Amateur Poets Borrow, said T.S. Eliot, professional poet steal. And other people said it before him. Um <laughs> <laughs> so we look each week at um, something you've come across and your readings or wanderings that you want to take and make your own. Uh, would you All like right. one of us to begin or would you like to begin? I would love for one of you to begin. <laughs> Angie, you want to take it away? <laughs> I know, I was sitting here, I'm really tired you right now. You just talked about the gravity <laughs> thing. That was almost one right there. I know. But I was like, hmm, I read somewhere that Auden, like, took amphetamines before he wrote and uh but no, really no, all i want no. is a cup of coffee <laughs> so i think this week no going back to the design thinking and really thinking about systems and process i'm a person who will like set up a system and completely forget it and trying to think about what it what it means for someone like me to sit with anything around being consistent <laughs> and so um i think this week i am going to think about applying a design process to solving or designing a um, creative life where I don't actually have judgment on myself for not writing in a right way. Because mm. I think I you, you hear a lot about you should write every day and the truth is no. <laughs> That's never going to happen for me. And um, so I think that like asking a better question and setting up like a, a, a design process around solving that. Mm. Which is very vague. So, huh? That's like not, that is not a good model at all. It is just not at all a good model. So, I'm, I'm gonna steal something else. Well, I'll, I'll go next. That's pretty good. Because <laughs> uh, I've actually, I, right before we started recording, I was preparing my next craft class and I was looking at backstory and when people go to backstory and why and how. And, um, a couple of things I noticed. One is I noticed that many, many books are framed almost like framed as backstory. Like they'll start somewhere, whether it's like a moment ahead and go back in a moment or they'll start somewhere else and go back a bunch. But there's this sort of this like backstory as a way to open story. So I kind of ignored that in my prep. But one of the things I came across that I loved and I actually tagged it on as a final example for my class is in uh, The History of Love by Nicole Krauss, mm -hmm. um, which is one of my favorite books. And he, the uh, Leo Gursky is reading his the pages of the book he wrote and, and that he thought was lost forever. And um, and he keeps referring to memories, memories crowded in, but he doesn't actually go to the memories. And we've gotten a lot by then, and I think there might be more to come, but in this moment, you know, Nicole Krauss actually sticks with the physical experience he's having, like the pages, like he gets a paper cut and he waters the plant and his eyes get blurry. And so even though he's referencing memories, we're actually staying in the physical room with him in the forward moving scene and I really loved that like I, I sort of thought oh yeah there's a reminder mm. that 
you know, the, the fact that the memories are coming up might be more important than a long digression into what they are. So I, I might steal that. <laughs> was that a long digression into yes, the... Yes, that was, that was me talking abstractly <laughs> about the importance of not being abstract. Uh, Molly, how about you? <laughs> oh, man, those are good ones, you guys. Um and let's see, my Skype is getting a little fuzzy. Can you hear me? We yes. can hear you well. I'm not stalling, I promise. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right, so uh, when, uh, in terms of stealing, I, I realize that I do not write enough about gross things, the grotesque, mm. um, and I was reading, uh, rereading some of uh, The World According to Garp, John Irving, um, who is the master of the like beautiful next to the disgusting. Um, so I, I, I was noticing how he does that and there's very little shock value to it, which um, I think is what makes it so masterful. It's kind of just um, conversationally like, and then the dog ate the kid's face and um, the scene's over. Um, so that is something I'm, I'm interested in implementing. And, and I do see it a lot in, um, you know, how authors sometimes describe illness, um, which is another thing that I'm, I'm hoping to steal a bit is the marriage between humor and the grotesque and the you know if sickness is involved there's a of course a despair there as well so kind of marrying those those three aspects of something that's not so easy on the stomach um but if you're writing about characters in a large family there's got to be a certain uh amount of the grotesque right (laughs) Yeah, in fact, that's that's exactly you know I, I've come to a certain point, and I I notice myself being a little shy about that stuff because I'm oh who it's icky, <laughs> and then I realize that some of the best writing is indeed icky. Mm-hmm. Um, Wonderful, I love that. That's a really we've never had that before. <laughs> that's no, that's we've not one. had that at all. Um, so tell us where uh, our listeners can find their way to you and your work and to the retreat. Sure. Um, well, my website, I can't believe that there are no Molly Shulmans in the world who haven't snagged this URL, but it is simply www.molly, M-O-L-L-Y, Shulman, S-C-H-U-L-M-A-N. Dot com. Um, and <laughs> uh, there I, I have some... I think I still have some poems up on the website, um, but for the most part, it's just, um, you know, covers a lot of the stuff that we spoke about today in terms of my my background and what I'm currently working on and uh, the freelance work that I do. And I get more, uh, my website, you know, describes in more detail about the editorial work that I do do in terms of, you know, the micro edits and the macro edits and the, um, you know, developmental stuff. So if anyone is curious into what it actually means to have a freelance editor, that is a good place to find out some more information. Plus some fantastic testimonials. I mean, they just don't I, I do have some friendly, <laughs> some friendly words over there, um, which, you know, again, uh, just to kind of focus on the relationship aspect of this work, uh, it's really first and foremost, just building friendships in this kind of non-traditional way. You know, half of my authors I've never met, you work remotely and yet you're able to build these connections and um, true 
it's it's strange when you don't necessarily know a lot about someone's family and you don't necessarily know what their hobbies are and yet you've read you know 400 plus pages of their <laughs> you know most deepest it's disguised as a novel but i'm sure it includes many of their real life right. you know, <laughs> questions and insecurities and um so it's just wonderful to get to know people on that level. And I, I do thank all of you wonderful writers who have given me these testimonials. If you're out there, thank you. <laughs> I hope they're all out there listening to our <laughs> podcast. Um, yes. And then La Ventura, I can spell this L-A-V-V-E-N-T-U-R-A dot net is where to find yes. out how to join you in September in villas and, and restaurants in Italy. <laughs> Yes, Nona's house. Yes. Come on down. <laughs> I'm just coming for breakfast. Okay. <laughs> breakfast at Nona's. And so that's great. So that's how to find Molly. And then I just have a couple of quick announcements. Um, one is that uh, I am doing a show as part of the National Queer Arts Festival um, called Trajectory with a bunch of amazing um, poets, performers, authors, and activists over 40 talking about the last two decades plus and the and kind of what it, what, it, what you thought was going to happen and what did. So I encourage people to check that out. We're on Facebook, Trajectory. Um, and then um, Angie and I are going to be part of the very first ever Sebastopol Lit Crawl that's going to be on June 17th. And we're going to be at uh, Copperfield Sebastopol between one and two reading with a bunch of other amazing people who we, who oh, we cool. don't know yet so super I, fun I will be also leading a workshop at St. Mary's for a fundraiser for Hedbrook so yeah also on June 10th so yes. if, if you want to have an all day writing retreat and then a workshop with Angie or somebody else go to go to Hedbrook I do I do <laughs> go to, to St. Mary's yes. and where can people find out about that We'll put it in the show notes. Oh, there we go. So we've got lots of good things. Um, and if you're in Austin, uh, go yes. hear Molly read. Yeah. Although we, this may be out. No, really. Oh, okay. We'll, we'll see. What we'll see. Yeah. I'll be reading at some point again. So, <laughs> yes. But will there always be ice cream? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. There better be. Or I'm moving back to New York for the wine. <laughs> Thank you so, so much uh, for talking with us. It's been wonderful. Yes. Thank you. It's just been so lovely. Elizabeth and Angie, great to meet you. And uh, I will be listening to the podcast. Oh, right. Thank you so, so much. much. Bye. Bye. Bye.